The most bitterly contested issue of the strike was the shape-up. Longshoremen wanted to eliminate the shape and replace it with a clean hiring hall run by the union. But union officials from the East Coast, who made millions off kickbacks from the shape-up, were not ready for that much reform. ILA President Joe Ryan came in from New York to negotiate an end to the walkout. He struck a deal that included higher wages and shorter working hours, but kept the shape up. Bridges and his supporters felt they had been sold out. They rejected the contract and the union president. There is a big meeting in San Francisco where one after another, the rank and file, stands up and criticizes Joe Ryan. Joe Ryan finally finds it best to leave town. There are threats to his life. He's told, you go back to New York or you'll go back in a box. It was at this time, according to Bridges, that he was offered a large bribe by the ship owners to back off. Bridges joked that he briefly considered accepting the money if only to plow it back into the union strike fund. In San Francisco, Harry Bridges is ordered to jail as a threat to the national security. The Longshoremen's Union president had been out on $25,000 bail since last April when he was convicted of perjury for denying membership in the Communist Party. I'm an officer of a left-wing trade union, and that's the way those people think, and as long as my rank and file feel that way, my job is to represent them that way. What do you mean by a left-wing trade union? Well, obviously on the record it's a union that means uh, that it's willing to arbitrate. Uh, to start yeah. That's a matter of record. It's also a union that believes in uh, a lot of rank-and-file democracy and control. It's also a union that recognizes that from time to time it's got to stand up and fight for certain things that might necessarily only be wages, hours, and conditions. Civil liberties, racial equality, and things like that. 1937. Now nearly a decade into the greatest global crisis in capitalism's history, the working class in the United States has stood up in record numbers. The class struggle prompted by the economic downturn sent millions into the unions and launched a wave of massive strikes across the country, including general strikes in Minneapolis, Toledo, and San Francisco. The upsurge in the fight back by workers to demand employment and basic necessities of life in the midst of capitalist collapse terrified the ruling class into passing FDR's Social Democratic New Deal in order to stave off a revolution. As a result of some of the monumental legislation passed as a part of the New Deal, millions of workers joined the labor movement for the first time. All of this was happening, however, at a moment of great turmoil within the halls of American Federation of Labor the face of the mainstream labor movement for the past three decades. While union leaders welcomed the rapid growth of their unions, a debate raged between two factions on the best way to seize the times and build the strongest movement possible. One side, led by AFL President William Green, protege of business unionist Sam Gompers, promoted staying the course of tradition, funneling workers into narrow craft unions based on their specific trade, focusing on so-called skilled work, and largely abandoning mass production workers. The other side, led by the United Mine Workers' John L. Lewis, 
believed that for far too long, the craft unionists atop the AFL had failed to organize the great mass of factory workers in major industries because they refused to embrace wall-to-wall industrial unionism, and that this refusal was greatly weakening the potential power of the unorganized workers. Stay tuned to find out who the good and bad guys are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean... It, it's really funny because like the, the epic clash between the AFL and the CIO is absolutely worthy of its own series, which we will probably do eventually. But that's not what this series is about. <laughs> so John Lewis's position was reinforced by the great victories won by mass strikes in 1934, led largely by radicals and the rank and file and based on the broadest possible swath of workers, ignoring petty craft differences. The CIO moved rapidly to focus efforts organizing mass production industries like steel and automobiles, but they also saw members flock to them from other unions, fed up with the conservative AFL. One of the larger unions caught in the fight between the AFL conservatives and the CIO progressives was the International Longshoremen's Association. While the ILA had been at the center of the 1934 San Francisco general strike, As we discussed in a previous Overtime episode, it was in spite of the union's national leadership, not because of it. Longtime president, or as he was often jokingly referred to as King Joseph P. Ryan, had done his best to prevent the strike from happening in the first place, and then to end it as fast as possible once it started. He even stooped to red-baiting his own union members, attacking the West Coast local leadership for supporting the strike and calling the whole thing a communist conspiracy. The rift between the rank and file, who overwhelmingly supported the strike, and the leadership in New York City could hardly have been any wider. And if folks have listened to our episode on the general strike of 1934 in San Francisco, we have all sorts more detail in that. So if you want more of the details on that, check that out. Yeah, and it's interesting because it fits this pattern that we see not just in unions, but in a lot of uh, organizations that are based around any kind of like, you know, goals really is that like the 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 membership actually tends to be significantly more progressive or even radical than the leadership is at any given moment and it's um uh, it would be nice if this wasn't a pattern that we saw repeating all the way up to the present day <laughs> yeah no absolutely and it, it it's it's one of those things that's so frustrating when you go back and read like a lot of labor history, like you know, going to put this series together because you see absolutely incredible things happening in the rank and file, just the energy, the upsurge from after the, the early years of the Depression, just people absolutely fed up, no longer willing to accept that, oh, for society to function – half the country has to be thrown out of work and and thrown into starvation. And so you have millions of workers like who just basically decided, you know what? Fuck this. We're not taking it anymore. Something has to change. And so the attempts to sabotage the general strike forced new leaders to emerge from the ranks on the West Coast. And the victory of the militant organizers of the strike launched the star of Harry Bridges, an Australian immigrant and a communist, to the head of the powerful San Francisco ILA local. Unlike Ryan, Bridges was committed to the cause of the entire working class, not just his own personal position. And during those turbulent days of the 1930s, he said, 
We take the stand that we as workers have nothing in common with the employers. We are in a class struggle, and we subscribe to the belief that if the employer is not in business, his products will still be necessary, and we still will be providing them when there is no employing class. We frankly believe that day is coming. Which, uh, I certainly wish was the message we heard from more leaders. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's the same kind of quote that we do read out on the show from time to time, and you mostly see it from, like, shop floor organizers and rank-and-file members, where they manage to sum up the majority of the issues they're facing in about three lines, compared to when you see, like, business unionists or, God help you, the fucking company release a statement. It's usually two to three fucking pages long and contains zero information. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it's also one of the things that's important to emphasize about this quote from Bridges is that while it, you know, was certainly considered quite radical compared to, say, King Joe Ryan... Mm-hmm. I mean, that sort of sentiment was far more widespread among the rank and file than, you know, perhaps today after decades of anti-communist indoctrination, uh, especially, you know, during the 1919 general strike in Seattle, the general strikes in 1934 in San Francisco and in Minneapolis, there was all sorts of large groupings of workers who were not just fighting for, you know, better working conditions for themselves and, and, and for their, their coworkers, but for a totally new society with an understanding that this idea of, of, of a rising tide lifts all boats is uh, bullshit because these folks have all just lived through the very first years of the Great Depression and seen that while they and all their friends were thrown out of their jobs and often many times lost the, their homes or maybe had to move, you know, again, there was an enormous migration from the middle of the country to California because of the Depression. And yet at the same time, all of the barons like, you know, J.P. Morgan, the Rockefellers, all the DuPonts, all the Henry Fords, all of these folks, they were doing just fine. You know, maybe they weren't selling quite so many cars or whatever it was they made, but they didn't have to sacrifice anywhere near as much as the workers did. And so there was, you know, millions of workers across the country who at this point, after seeing all that, had basically determined that the system that they lived under, the American capitalism of 1934 to 1937, was a failed system, one that worked only for their bosses and not for them, which of course is still true today, but unfortunately we have a lot to do to rebuild the unanimity of that sentiment. Mm -hmm. And so Bridges' rhetoric, and more importantly, his willingness to back it up with strike action and refusal to be corrupted by industry bribes made him enemy number one of not only the shipping bosses, but the internal union leadership of the ILA. A secret memo from Thomas Plant, vice president of American Hawaiian Shipping, one of the larger West Coast shipping firms at the time, showed just how frightened the shippers were of the militant leadership assembled around bridges. Quote, We have worked all angles. The Department of Labor, J.P. Ryan, Lewis, Peterson, and other conservative ILA leaders on this coast, our only apparent hope of progress lies in trying to persuade the conservative leaders that if they wanted to preserve anything for the ILA, they would have to set their own house in order. 
We have had reason to believe that conservatives Lewis and Peterson and some of the others are really making progress. It is, of course, a slow process. It is obvious that if we do anything to hurt Lewis and Peterson, that the other conservatives at this time, we nullify all the work they are doing and their efforts to clean out the radicals, end quote. Yeah, and there's, to me, there's so much that that memo really tells us, you know, about the the way that the bourgeoisie, you know, relates to the union struggle and specifically related to it at a very transformative period. Because again, the 30s was the era that that trade unionism evolved from its earlier, more open, like warfare confrontational style, where you had things like, you know, the the West Virginia Mine Wars, the Ludlow Massacre, the the the, the great you know, the, all these general strikes that have happened, you know, in the years between the wars to the more, I get somewhat bureaucratized form that it would take following the 1935 passage of the National Labor Relations Act, largely in response to these general strikes. And, and I think that that's one of the things about this letter that's so revealing is that, well, of course, all of the shippers would prefer there be no union whatsoever. But if there has to be a union, there's a very specific type of union and a way that a union would function that they're willing to accept, uh, which is exactly, you know, why when we look at things like labor management, you know, teaming concepts that we see today, it's all just an evolution of this same thing. The idea that the business should be able to foster and generate the type of union leader that they want. And, and it's the sort of thing that should always help puncture, you know, that rhetoric that is constantly deployed of, look, you know, like, yeah, we understand maybe we don't have everything in common as the workers and the bosses. But, you know, if the company does better, everyone does better. And so we really just need to work together to get production up. <laughs> right. And then so the bosses try to exemplify that by creating good relationships with these business-friendly union leaders, and that creates kind of a public image that, oh, this is working for everybody. And, you know, in contrast, when there are more radical leaders, they're like, this is crazy, this is antagonism, you know, nothing like this will work. But then when you actually see the outcomes of those struggles, uh, we see that the radicals always get more wins. Well, we're always told that, like, things are going well when there hasn't been a labor conflict in a long time. And the union has great relationships with the company. And it's just like, okay, but how long have wages sat at the exact same Mm -hmm. level? Like, I would argue that... Uh, labor relations are actually going very well when there are frequent strikes, such as the ones like Luna Oi told us about when she talked about unions in Vietnam. Right, exactly. And that's one of the things that I think is so critical to like point out that even though Bridges' sentiment was far more you know, common amongst the workers at the time, it was still such a critical break to, to openly state that there is no commonality of interest between the workers and the bosses. That is the cardinal sin for a labor leader that the bosses simply cannot accept. Because even, even labor leaders who are, are absolutely staunch fighters for their rank and file, who genuinely want to get the best for their workers, but are trapped in the liberal ideology of this idea that what we have to do is have a balance between the forces of capital and labor. That can be accommodated in the system. But a strong leadership that understands that 
there in fact cannot be a balance of power between those forces. Well, that's dangerous. And so the ship owners had to try and, you know, come up with a way to, to deal with that. And so they had tried multiple times to force the workers to evict bridges and elect more compliant leadership. They even tried locking the workers out with the specific demand that they get rid of hairy bridges. <laughs> like, which I'm just like, that's the thing. If you ever have your boss like lock you out or start a labor struggle specifically to get rid of your local union leader, that leader probably rocks. <laughs> yeah, throw them a party. <laughs> so... And unsurprisingly, these attacks backfired by demonstrating to the rank and file that Bridges was in fact fighting for them rather than accepting sweetheart deals, as had been the case under previous conservative leadership aligned with Ryan. Addressing a crowd of assembled striking workers, Bridges said, quote, when agreements conflict with labor solidarity, agreements must go. End quote. <laughs> and the contrast with the narrow, self-centered unionism of King Joe Ryan could not possibly be more stark. I mean, it's the polar opposites. Yeah, it's like he would he's one of those kind of guys who's like, oh, the contract is everything. It's above all aspects of, of you know, struggle. You know, the, if we break the contract, then we are not acting, you know, in good faith because mm -hmm. the company is definitely acting in good faith all the time. You know, that kind of that kind of nonsense. Right. And, and that's like one of the one of the insidious things about like the NLRA that it is actually really difficult, I think, you know, to get a it's very hard to build a very simplistic narrative, I think, when you really get into the history of it, because on on the one hand, it absolutely did make building unions easier, which is vital. That's an it's an unalloyed good. It's great. But at the same time. It also forced union struggle largely into a box, a box that is far more uh, easy for the bosses to deal with than the very disruptive unionism prior to the NLRA. So this is one of those moments where you see like a transformation in consciousness of what unions are and a struggle over that because you have the rank and file, many of whom have gone through those early struggles in the 30s, whose understanding is the purpose of this union is to fight the bosses because the bosses are motherfuckers who aren't going to give us anything. <laughs> Whereas the thinking that they want to move it towards, that, that it, it eventually becomes, is that, again, that it's, it's a boardroom negotiation. It's the forces of labor and the forces of capital, and they come together and they argue as reasonable folks, and they come to an agreement, and that compromise is, that's the essence of democracy right there. You got yep. different interests coming together and finding a place they can move forward. Yeah, we got yeah. hundreds of people agreeing with three people. That's democracy. <laughs> and the Roman Senate is smiling down on us from Roman heaven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and that's the thing, is, is, is the bureaucratized form of unionism created by the, the NLRA, and, and then, and of course, relatively copied around the social democratic European West, is really tricky because it puts you into these situations where the definition of a responsible union shifts from a union which puts the, the like, the needs of its membership first to a union which in helps the boss enforce the contract. So that's really what they were looking for. Now, of course, 
most unions did not fall into that and did continue to fight for their members as and have continued to do so even through the major downturns. But that's always been their goal, to completely neuter the labor movement. And it's people like King Joe Ryan who have tried to help them move along in that direction. And so opposing him, of course, you have people like Henry Bridges, who was a strong advocate for industrial unionism. And immediately upon being elected head of the ILA's Pacific Coast Division, he launched a campaign to unionize warehouse workers who handled cargo unloaded from the West Coast docks. The March Inland, as it was called, further enraged business owners and also upset the traditional craft sensibilities of the ILA leadership. Expanding the unity of workers at critical logistic nodes from the ports to the warehouses was, from the perspective of wanting to build power for the whole working class, an obvious move. But it clashed with the narrow craft unionism of the AFL and put a target on Bridges' back. When it became clear that the international leadership of the ILA under Joe Ryan would never provide the support and resources necessary to continue to grow the union, Bridges advocated that the workers join the CIO. Just three years after the San Francisco general strike of 1934, the entire Pacific Coast division of the ILA, fully half its geographic area, voted to secede from the union and join the CIO under the new banner of the International Longshore and Warehouse Workers Union, the ILWU. Bridges would remain as president of the ILWU for the next 40 years, guiding it through the Red Scare, the expulsion of the ILWU from the CIO for its refusal to betray its communist members, and the apocal shift of longshore work to containerization. Throughout his tenure and continuing through to today, the ILWU has stood as a bastion of progressive, class struggle-based unionism fighting for a society where workers have control. It is so fucking impressive to be a communist leading a large national union and through the Red Scare and to be like, you know what? No, we're not purging any fucking members. I'm staying right where I am. I'm running this thing for four straight decades. And and just being so resilient in the face of what I'm sure was at that time, probably just an utterly relentless onslaught, both from conservatives and regular garden variety liberals. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, and also, like, to I think what makes Bridges' tenure even more impressive is that unlike, say, a Daniel Tobin of the, the Teamsters, who was the president for 45 years, uh, there were actually democratic structures in place mm-hmm. in the ILWU because the, the early years of the Teamsters, there were not. There are now, thankfully. But the ILWU, since its formation has been based on rank-and-file democracy. So not only did Bridges remain as president for 40 years, he remained as president because the rank-and-file wanted him there, mm-hmm. which, which just demonstrates his effectiveness. No, he must have been a tyrant, okay? Those elections could not possibly have been... He forced them all to vote for him. <laughs> like, <laughs> he brainwashed them. He put on one of those like old-timey like doctor mirrors and held up a spinning spiral with a... <laughs> <laughs> to just yeah, hypnotize I mean, people. It's very funny because you see the, the parallel with like a lot of socialist national leaders where it's just like, oh, it turns out if you actually do things for your membership, they like you and they elect you again. <laughs> 
I just can't help but remember some of the justifications for uh, awful CIA programs with the idea that the communists brainwash people when in reality, you know, solidarity and centering worker struggle is a very powerful weapon in, you know, showing people that there is a better world to be built. And then these fucking ghouls think that, oh, that's brainwashing. We need to hurt people. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. When you are a purveyor of misery and death and then people come along and they're like i'd like to stop misery and death it does kind of look like brainwashing to you i guess <laughs> well and it's it's also one of those things that's just so cynical where you have you know people talking about how like they'll be like nicholas maduro is only president because he's been buying votes by building free housing for poor people I'm like, What's the job of a president? I'm like, isn't that what you're supposed to... Why, well, isn't that what why people vo- are supposed to vote for you? Because you do things that no, you're help supposed them? No, you're supposed to get predatory IMF loans for Central African countries. <laughs> why are you not on this page? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and I mean, it's it's one of those... It, it, these are, like, you know, the things that really exemplify why we love the ILWU, why we're mm-hmm. unabashed partisans of it, uh, and have, have really tried to highlight it as a, as a standout of union democracy and rank-and-file power throughout the history of the U.S. labor movement. But this is not a series about the ILWU. Aww. <laughs> While we hail the achievements and steadfast dedication to the cause of the working class by that union, we are here to examine the history of the union they seceded from, the ILA. What made the ILA leadership so entrenched its corrupt rule so ironclad that despite over a century of outcry by rank-and-file workers, union democracy still seems out of reach. Why were workers on the West Coast able to shake off corrupt leaders and build a democratic, militant longshore union, but workers on the East Coast saw similar reform movements defeated? Why was organized crime so easily able to establish control on the docks, especially in New York City, And how has their involvement with the union shaped the fight for reform? Over the next several episodes, as we look through the story of the longshore organizing in the United States, we will do our best to answer these questions and try to separate the real, sordid history of corruption from the broad brush of allegation and innuendo from the corporate media. Longshore unions have long been attacked by the media and the ruling class more broadly as corrupt, lazy, even criminal organizations. Like ruling class attacks on other unions, such as the Teamsters, these attacks have been exaggerated and overgeneralized. However, even when viewed from a rigorous class perspective, the history of the ILA is troubling. Unlike the Teamsters, the UAW, and most other major unions in the United States, there has been no successful reform movement in the ILA. Following the secession of West Coast workers to the ILWU, The leadership of the ILA on the East Coast did face many challenges, but always managed to maintain their control of the docks. Meanwhile, with class collaborationist leadership cemented in place by a lack of internal democracy, corruption and even mob domination flourished in some locals, especially in New York City. Elia Kazan's film, On the Waterfront, made longshore unions the face of attacks by the ruling class and its media on the entire labor movement as being functionally just criminal fronts and shakedown rackets, abusing both companies and the rank-and-file workers. While this portrait was distorted in scope, there was sadly some small bits of truth scattered throughout the attempt to tar the whole movement with an overly broad brush. 
the leadership of the ILA, especially under King Joe Ryan, did in fact make deals with the mob as well as the major shipping firms, sacrificing the interests of the union's membership for the personal profit of leaders like Ryan and their patrons, both legitimate and criminal. And interestingly, even when there are situations where the union fucked up and they might have like associations with organized crime or they might have associations with the company that are, you know, inappropriate, it's never the fucking company getting scrutinized the same Mm -hmm. way. Like they might have, you know, far more associations with organized crime. They are definitely the ones instigating the inappropriate relationships with the union. And yet the only organization we're supposed to think of as corrupt is the union. To some degree, we're supposed to think of the union, according to the media, as like corrupt and the mob as being like this funny little thing that happens in America. Yeah, (laughs) it's treated like it's a a force of nature. Like it's just part of the background environment. It's like... Mm -hmm. Oh man, it's a shame. New York got hit by a hurricane. Oh, it's a shame. This fish market got taken over by the mob. It's like those are those aren't the same thing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> why are we why are we naturalizing organized crime and uh, and organized business crime as well for that matter and then trying to like alienate the idea of like workers having an organization (laughs) it's pretty politically motivated and you brought up though like what i think is is a very very critical point that is going to resurface over and over again in this series which is the way the media and our, our ruling class defines what organized crime even is because frankly, when you examine the history of the shipping companies on the East Coast, I don't know that organized crime isn't a better label for them than even some of the mafia. Because they, they are consistently organizing campaigns to destroy the rights of their workers. And in flagrant violation of even the weak-ass labor laws we have in this country. And so... We consistently see through the years, even when there are problems in the union, they get blared out of every single you know outlet that the bourgeois press can put together so everybody hears about it. But when the same thing or, or even magnitudes worse is done by the shipping companies or, as we'll get into later in this series, by the federal government itself, for some reason... Not as much coverage in the press and not anywhere near the level of anger and vitriol shown them. And so that is going to be one of the core themes of this this series is that while there have been many problems of corruption involved with the leadership of the ILA, the corruption that has existed on the docks by the shippers and the government has largely been left out of that discussion. And I think it's time that we brought it back in. So rank-and-file dock workers have not been content to sit quietly. While no reform movement like the TDU or UAWD has broken through to change the union's bylaws and bring democracy to the ILA, that has not been for lack of effort by the workers. Throughout the decades, thousands of longshoremen have demanded better from the leadership, often forcing strikes that officers were vehemently opposed to, taking action against the bosses without waiting for permission. The ILA has been racked by contradiction for its entire existence, simultaneously containing both incredibly radical, militant movements for working-class power and class collaborationists willing to work with the bosses, the mob, and even the federal government to prevent rank-and-file control of the East Coast ports. 
In this series, we will examine the entire history of the ILA, or as much as I could research of it, <laughs> which for over a century has represented dock workers up and down the East Coast, from Portland, Maine, to Mobile, Alabama. Longshoremen have been at the center of many titanic labor struggles in U.S. history, heading general strikes in Seattle and San Francisco, and commanding tremendous leverage due to their position at critical logistical choke points in the global capitalist system. You like that boat pun? <laughs> Much like rail and airline workers, this position has put longshore workers right in the crosshairs of the federal government, which has long been determined to keep the ports open and stop workers from gaining total control of America's shipping. This is foreshadowing as one of the big reasons why the ILA has been like this so long. <laughs> the history of the ILA, despite the continued dominance of business unionist leadership, is full of struggle and tumult. During the fight to bring democracy to the union, workers have faced bans on the docks by federal investigators, been blacklisted by corrupt union and company officials, and even assaulted or murdered by mob figures who refused to lose access to the lucrative scams they were running. Even after the end of the reign of King Joe Ryan, leaders following him have been no friendlier to rank-and-file reformers and have maintained his rabid anti-communism, as much a valuable tool for red-baiting dissidents as for their genuine hatred of the international revolutionary movement. I mean, really, when you are trying to undermine any kind of working class solidarity or gains, even if the workers aren't communist, anti-communism is just so fucking hyper-effective. And that's the reason they've never stopped pressing that button since they figured out it was there. Yeah, like, uh, there are some examples that, that we will get into later. The people that some of the leaders of this union have called communists because they oppose them in mild ways is fucking wild. <laughs> well, and I don't know, like, if you're a modern spectator of, like, American bourgeois politics, you should be pretty fucking used to that already, because, like, <laughs> the Republican Party will literally call Hillary Clinton or <laughs> Joe Biden a communist, so, you know, that you have to remember what register you're operating in, because in some of them, these words have lost all fucking meaning. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple examples in this history that are even maybe more ridiculous than those. Good lord. And, 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 but to emphasize, that's another reason why, you know, we can't shrug off red baiting. We can't just, you know, try to, try to minimize our affiliation with, you know, so the socialist movement. Uh, you know, we can, we can relate to people and put things in terms that are, are you know, more popular. But anytime you try and just dodge the red baiting accusation by minimizing your connection to the radicals, they just dig in harder and harder mm -hmm. and harder, and you never win. You have to go, you have to head it face on, just like Harry Bridges did. That's the only way to deal with red baiting. You got to have a union where if you're going to be an organizer, you show up and you're like, hey, I'm a communist. That's why I'm interested in helping you. And then you help them a bunch. And then when the government or the media or the company is like, that organizer is a communist, everyone will just go, we know. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and we do not care because yeah. he's cool yeah <laughs> or really more likely today she's cool uh, but facing pressure from shipping companies mob bosses and even federal agents the struggle on the docks has never simply been a fight between the workers and their direct employers the complexity of these relationships and the vital importance of their position in the national economy has prompted the government to intervene forcefully and directly, 
on the docks more often than in many other industries, which played a critical role in subverting the rise of reform movements. The state has never been a neutral actor on the docks and even worked with mafia figures when the alternative was to allow working class power to grow. In this series, we'll look at the way the government, the mafia, and the shipping bosses have often found their interests converge in opposition to any movement for union democracy in the ILA. And we're going to get into some fun stuff with, uh, that actually is going to have some overlap with some of our repressive state apparatus series. I just want to shout out probably my favorite single source that I used for this, uh, this series. Uh, sociologist Howard Kimmeldorf titled his study of the two longshore unions, Reds or Rackets, pointing to the epithets that the two longshore unions were hit with during their splits. History has unfortunately shown that that was indeed the choice on the waterfront between a militant, radically democratic union with a strong ideological commitment to national and international labor solidarity or a waterfront free of radicals but dominated by corrupt criminal elements. As we've seen time and time again throughout U.S. labor history, faced with the choice between accepting militant unions that will fight for the best contract for their members or a union riddled with corruption and mob ties, the government has chosen the latter every single time. The capitalist state, though hating having to pay bribes and kickbacks to corrupt officials, will take payoffs to individuals over allowing workers to reclaim their surplus value and control over their lives every day of the week. Yeah. And it's on it's on full display with the way that you see unions talked about in the media, where it's like they would so much rather get to lob the accusation that the union is a racket because that means that the union is ineffective and they have like a fun little epithet for it. Then try to tackle a communist-led union or even just like relatively progressive one because then they still have an epithet, but they can't like get in there and co-opt the union because like the the criticism is like, oh, the unions are too mobbed up, and the communists are like, well, we have a solution for that, and everyone's like, oh no, not like that, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah, no, I- exactly. I-, I mean, I think a good example is if folks have been paying attention right now to the ruling class's reaction to the new president of the UAW, mm-hmm. you seeing just a mild form of what the press was like when Harry Bridges became the president of the ILWU. Even with Sean Fain, you have people like Jim Cramer on CNBC absolutely just wilding out out there like, it was Marx, Engels, and Sean Fain, (laughs) I believe was one of his quotes on a recent rant. Oh my god, I wish. Things that would be so fucking great if they were true. (laughs) Yeah, it, 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 it's wild. Like, you, you see, like, even just a labor leader who's not like, we need the UAW to seize control of production of autos in this country because we can run these companies better than the bosses, which is objectively true. Mm-hmm. That's just a fact. Even just saying, you know, we need no more concessions. We need a contract that our workers can live on. We need no more tiers. We need no more seven-day work weeks for temps. All things that you would think are just, you know, basic trade unionism, the sort of thing that a a company could grudgingly accept but certainly wouldn't like, has become the sort of thing that people just absolutely lose their shit over today. And so that is, we have to keep that in mind because that's what we're getting with, you know, folks who are, you know, relatively straightforward progressive reformers and understand that, you know, as we progress the struggle, 
as we get, you know, educate workers, as, as, as the union movement builds and radicalization is fomented within it, we have to stick to our guns because there's always going to be those forces that try and say, hey, no, you know, it's great that you're rebuilding the labor movement, but you got to get those radicals out of there. They're, ju they're just going to alienate all the regular workers. They're, they're going to make it so you can't have that mass appeal. We just need to have responsible leadership. <laughs> it, it's got to be uh, real weird to hear that when you know from personal experience that the people they're talking about are some of the most effective organizers in your entire organization. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so... This, unfortunately, the story of the ILA does not follow the more pleasant trajectory of the Teamsters or, as we were just talking about, the UAW. With small corrupt elements isolated at the very top and defeated and removed by an internal rank-and-file democracy movement. Though many corrupt officials have been prosecuted and jailed for various crimes, the broader regime of labor peace has remained firmly in place. There's been no Ron Carey, no Sean O'Brien, no Sean Fain, or more importantly, no long-term reform caucus to build a years, sometimes decades-long collective fight to transform the union from a system of labor patronage to one of militant industrial action. At the same time, the government has used ILA corruption to tar the entire labor movement with a broad brush of mafia ties, despite the fact that throughout its history, the U.S. has used its own relationship to the mafia to crush real democratic union movements, not only in the U.S., but in France and Italy as well. The state's fight to keep workers from taking power at the port of New York has then been turned around and used to blame the entire labor movement for its declining numbers. It's, it's one of those things that is also maddening about, about reading this history because you will have federal officials actively working to get the most militant and most, you know, upright, most principled organizers fighting for the rank and file and get them thrown out of the union in favor of more corrupt elements. And then turn around and blame that on the union movement as a whole and try and convince un workers that unions are inherently corrupt when the union they're complaining about, they made corrupt in the first place. Yeah. Well, and then holding the whole thing up as an example of like, this is why unions don't fucking work is like so maddening because it's like, you know, not only did you do this, but also like it, it's you can't really escape the the fact that in the in public perception, you're only as strong as your weakest, most visible link. Right. So the solution to this isn't to be like, oh, you know, uh, actually, this one union is just a is just a bad example. And they're super corrupt. Like the solution is to go reform the union. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so kind of directly to that, you know, the history of the ILA also serve to show that it is structures not individuals, which mm -hmm. change the course of institutions long term. You know, even even when there's somebody who you know a lot as much as as Harry Bridges, he could not have created the ILWU by himself. It was the mass of the rank and file coming together to change the structure of their union to a more democratic one. Even when that took secession, that really changed it. Because even when individual union leaders actually stood up for their members and were not corrupt. The undemocratic bylaws preventing direct one-member, one-vote election of international officers has enabled entrenched class collaborationists to manipulate the delegate system and maintain executive control of the union. Without these structural changes to the union bylaws, 
internal reformers face a much steeper challenge to break through and clear out the remnants of decades of corruption. Whew. It's it's a it's a tough little uphill battle, isn't it? Because they get in power and then they make laws or bylaws that keep themselves in power. So it's kind of chicken or egg. It's like, well, we could we could elect a new president and then they have to change the bylaws or we could try changing the bylaws first to make it easier to elect our reform candidate. They both kind of have big downsides, don't they? Yeah, it, it, it's it's really to emphasize that, you know, look, it, it's kind of just these parallels between, you know, organizing in the union, organizing as socialists, really or doing any sort of working class organization. Our power is our numbers and our solidarity. Mm-hmm. It's never any one person, although, of course, individuals can play vital roles at plenty of moments in history. It's it's all of us wielding our collective power. And it's the structures of our organization that we use to actually put that power into practice. And so the way that those structures are set up are so vital and so central to whether our organizations are effective and powerful and able to change things or whether they end up spinning their wheels. So, and ultimately, the thing that I want to get back to is... I'm going to be very critical of the ILA in this series if you haven't caught on to that. But it's not because I'm, I want to condemn the union in any way. The, the ILA remains an organization made up of workers. For all its flaws, for all the corrupt officers, all the mob involvement, it still provides workers better paying conditions they would have if they were negotiating with the shipping companies individually. Because of this, the possibility remains for a new rank-and-file struggle to seize on the dissatisfaction of workers who have seen thousands of jobs leave the industry and had no say in how the ILA would respond. As a workers' organization, reform and democratic control of the docks remains a real possibility. It will be a difficult fight, but it's the only thing that can finally challenge the power of the shipping companies and their hired politicians on the waterfront. I think that a really important other episode, we've pointed to a couple other series here, but I think with that little conclusion there, we want to point people to Lenin on the trade union issue, because that also really explains why we are not ready to just throw the ILA out, say that, oh no, it's it's a bad union, it needs to be gotten rid of with no other you know solution. We need to make sure that there is, you know, reforms because this is a workers' organization. Something very important to learn, and we cannot bypass that really important point. Absolutely. Well, that's our little intro spiel for this series. I hope that you all are very excited for it because I definitely am. And we really want to thank you for being patrons because we've been getting through a lot of these series and it takes a ton of work to do them, and we could not do that without you. It means so much to us. So follow us in all the places. The links are at workstoppagepod.com. Listen to the sister shows and tell people to check us out. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. Let me tell you of the sailor. Harriet Bridges is his name. An honest union leader that the bosses tried to frame He left home in Australia to sail the seas around Sailed across the ocean to come to Frisco town There was only a company union and then the bosses had their way 
Us workers had to stand in line for a lousy buck a day When up spoke Harry Bridges said us workers must get wise Our wives and kids will starve to death if we don't get organized Oh, the FBI is worried and the bosses they are scared They can't deport six million men they know And we're not gonna let them send Harry over the seas Fight for Harry Bridges and we'll build the CIO We built a big bonfire around the Madsen lines that night We threw their fink books in it and we said we're gonna fight You've got to pay a living wage or we're gonna take a walk We told it to the bosses but the bosses wouldn't talk We said there's only one way left to get that contract signed And all around the waterfront we threw our picket line They called it Bloody Thursday, the fifth day of July A hundred men were wounded and two were left to die Oh, the FBI is worried and the bosses, they are scared They can't deport six million men they know And we're not gonna let them send Harry over the seas We'll fight for Harry Bridges and we'll build the CIO Now that was seven years ago, and in the time since then Harry's organized thousands more and made them union men to try to bribe him, the shipping bosses said. And if he won't accept a bribe, we'll say that he's a red. The bosses brought a trial to deport him overseas. But the judge said, he's an honest man, I've got to set him free. So they brought another trial, and to free him was the plan. But along with Harry Bridges stands every working man. The FBI is worried and the bosses, they are scared They can't deport six million men they know And we're not gonna let them send Harry over the seas we'll Fight for Harry Bridges and we'll build the CIO Oh, the FBI is worried and the bosses, they are scared They can't deport six million men they know Harry Bridges and we'll build the city.